Now, we are in week two of a sermon series called Radical Forgiveness. And if you're newer, uh, the way we do teaching series here is we pick a topic or a, a section of the Bible and we will teach through it for a number of weeks and then uh, move on to another topic or a section of scripture. Now, this sermon series, I probably don't have to tell you what it's about, forgiveness. And forgiveness is a really big deal for our faith, you know? I mean, we, we have to get this right. We can't have misunderstandings about it because it's such a big deal. The hope of our faith for those of us who are Christians is that we can have forgiveness from everything we've ever done wrong, every bad thing we've ever said, every cruel thought we've ever had, every betrayal, every gossiping word, story, whatever. We can have all of that forgiven so that we can have eternal life with God in heaven. And so last week what we did is we kind of laid some really important groundwork that I want to cover real quick here before we get going uh, this morning. Um, because this stuff is just, is important to know the, the basics of what forgiveness is. Because again, I think sometimes we get this stuff wrong and we can't afford to. It's too important. It's too big of a deal. Now, one thing I want us to understand is that when sin enters a relationship, it creates a debt-debtor mentality. When someone betrays you, when you betray someone else, it changes, sin changes the nature of your relationship with that person. And most of the time, we're too hurt, or we're too angry, or we're too shocked by that event of hurt to really think about the change that takes place. But this change justify, or, or determines how you go on forward, and it determines how you understand what forgiveness truly is. Sin creates a debt-debtor relationship between you and that other person, meaning that you're not just a husband and wife anymore. You're a debtor and a creditor. You're not just two friends anymore. You're a lender and a creditor. That's the, the nature of the relationship. That's why you walk away as the pain gives way to the anger of that betrayal. You start to think that they owe you, that they owe you something. Now, sometimes we think they should either pay us back, return what it is they stole from us in some way, shape, or form, or... We're going to pay them back. That's why revenge is such a strong and tempting reality when, when someone hurts us. Because we feel that there's a discrepancy. We feel that there's a debt and that it needs to be paid back. And so if they're not going to make things right, then by golly, we'll make things right. If they're not going to even the scale, then by golly, we'll even the scale. And I'll bet everyone in this room has looked at somebody and said, don't get mad. Get even. Yeah, see? You know that more than most Bible verses, right? Like, that's, that's something we've all said. Like, and so that's why we feel that way. It's because in a relationship, once sin gets into it, it changes the whole dynamic of that relationship between you and that person or you and God to a debt-creditor, debt-debtor relationship. And that's why I love Andy Stanley's definition of forgiveness. It's one of my favorites. He says this, Forgiveness means we release that person and say, You don't owe me. Forgiveness means we release that person and say, you don't owe me. Whatever it is they, we feel that they've taken from us. I've known uh, grown-up grown up people who look back on their childhood and all the mistakes their parents made and all the horrible things their parents made, and they feel like their parents owe them a normal childhood. I've known people who had their relationships fall apart after years, and they, they held, held grudges towards that person they were in a relationship with, feeling that they owed them the best years of their lives back. We hold on to these things, saying, you owe me something. But real forgiveness, true forgiveness, is this decision that you make to say, you don't owe me anymore. No matter what they've done, no matter how long you've been holding on to that anger, that rage, that bitterness, you say, that debt is gone. 
It doesn't exist anymore. I'm letting it go. And that is a huge thing that we have to understand when it comes to forgiveness. Now, today I want to add to this because if you boil down all the hurt, all the betrayal, all this issue of, of, of hurting someone, doing something wrong against them, and then forgiving them, if you boil all that down just to this debt-debtor language, this almost banking language, it can almost make it sound like this is just an impersonal transaction, this impersonal affair. And we all know that's not true. Because when somebody hurts you, it's personal. It's painful. In fact, the closer you are to a person that hurts you, the bigger the pain, the more personal it feels. And so maybe this language doesn't entirely feel fair. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about an area of our lives where we all kind of have a tendency to treat sin and forgiveness like it is some impersonal transaction. And that's in our relationship with our Heavenly Father. And so I want to talk about just that. What happens when we sin against God and what happens when He forgives us? How does that exactly work? Because again, it is not an impersonal transaction that takes place. And I've mentioned this before, and this is something I got from Andy Stanley years ago. He explains what happens when, when we make the sin and forgiveness relationship we have with God make it impersonal. And he explains there's a Catholic way for this and a Protestant way for this. And, and I'm not ripping on Catholics or Protestants. We're Protestant, okay? But we both do this, get this wrong sometimes, okay? And the Catholic way of doing it is I did something wrong. I broke some of God's rules, and so i got to make it right. So you go to the priest, confess your sins. He gives you some Hail Marys and maybe something else to do. And then, whoop, by golly, boom, boom, boom. Your sin's gone, forgiven, and you can carry on. Go back to sin. Do whatever you want. And as long as you go back... And get forgiven, you get your sins washed away. And so we add sins, and we have our sins removed. And it's just a little transaction. And we don't really feel bad about when we sin against God, because we can just go back to the priest and get forgiven, right? Now, the Protestant way for this is a little less formal, because we will sin and do whatever we want and really not care about the fact that sin might upset God or be a personal offense to Him. We can just ignore all of that, right? And we can be uh, focused on the fact that if we do sin, whatever it is, we just get in bed before we go to bed, or we get, in, we get into our beds, and we put our head on our pillow, and we close our eyes and say, Dear God, forgive me of all the sin that I committed today. Amen. And we can go to bed thinking, whew, I prayed for my sins, so if I die in my sleep, I can go to heaven. And then we get up tomorrow, and we do all the sins again, same stuff we've always done, and we get down to bedtime, our head hits the pillow, Dear Lord, please forgive me of all those sins I committed today. Amen. And we get our little insurance policy in before we go to bed, and we think, God forgave my sins, so now I can do whatever I want. And we kind of treat sin as this impersonal, we broke some of God's rules, you know, and we look at God's rules like we look at jaywalking. That's eh, no big deal, you know, because I'm just going to pray for it tonight, and he's going to forgive me, so whatever. And when we t make sin an impersonal thing, what we turn our faith into is just some silly little Religious hoops we've got to jump through just to ensure that we've got a, a fire, fire policy, fire insurance policy. You know, we, as long as when we die, we go to heaven. That's all we're really concerned about. We're not concerned with God, the relationship we have with him, and that's a problem. And I think all of us have that tendency, and you tend to excuse your sins and think they're not as big of a deal. And I do that to myself, and I think, oh, you know, I, it's just a part of me, and God will work that out, and I don't have to think much about it. But we, today, I want to kind of show us the size of your sin. And when we understand the size of our sin, it helps us understand the size of God's love for us, the size of the forgiveness that he shows us each and every 
day. And so the way we're going to do this and show the power of, of sin and the consequences of sin and the personal nature of sin is we're going to look at the first sin that we see in the Bible. So we're going to go to Genesis chapter 3 is where we're going to start today. Genesis chapter 3. If you want to get a Bible, fantastic. Uh, it's not going to be hard to find. Start at the beginning of your Bible and flip a few pages. If you use the hardback Bibles in the pew, you're going to be on page 3. Not Roman numeral 3, regular old number 3. And if you want to get uh, your fingers in where we're going later, we're going to be in uh, Isaiah 59 and Isaiah 43, if you want to know where we're headed in a little bit. The verses will also be on the screen. Okay. Now, as we get into Genesis chapter 3, we, we get to the point where God has just created everything, all the, all the stuff in the world, the universe, everything that there is. He created man, he created woman, and he stuck them in the Garden of Eden. And up until this point, Adam and Eve are living in the Garden of Eden. It is absolute, utter paradise, absolute, utter perfection. And God gave them freedom over almost the entire garden. He said, everything here is for your joy. You can eat from any tree here, including the tree of life, which meant that they would live forever in that paradise with God in this unhindered relationship with him. And there was one teeny tiny rule of all the things in the garden that you can have for your joy, all the food you can eat, there's one thing I don't want you to touch. And it was the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because when they ate that fruit, they would see as God sees. They would know all that God declares right and good, all that God declares wrong and evil. And Adam and Eve, long story short, did not obey their creator, did not follow his loving, guiding rule, one rule for them. They did whatever they wanted, they totally blew it off, and they immediately did the first thing God told them, the only thing God told them not to do when they ate of that tree. And in that moment, sin entered in the world. In that disobedience of God, sin entered into the world. And there were all kinds of consequences to that sin. And I'm not going to talk about all of them. I just want to focus on what happened in the relationship between God and Adam. In Genesis chapter 3, we'll start in verse 8. This is right after they ate the fruit. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. So God shows up to walk with Adam and Eve. We get the idea that this was normal, that God just being with his people was a normal thing. And the man... And his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Now, one thing that's interesting is up until this point, we never see fear. This is the first time we see fear in Scripture. Um, up until this point, again, like I said, we get the idea that God and Adam and Eve, they just kind of walked with each other. Got, we know God showed up to Adam several times. He, he said, Adam, I'm going to put you in charge of naming all these animals. And, you know, he's, he came up with words zebra and aardvark and all that stuff. And then we come up uh, where God presents Adam with Eve after Adam was lonely. And we see this relationship, no fear, no cowering, this welcoming environment between the two. And then all of a sudden, after sin is fear. And what's interesting is one of the hallmarks of interactions between humans and God for the rest of the Bible is fear. And not like, oh, I'm a little scared, but like fall to the ground, shaken in your boots, terrified in the presence of God. Now what happened? Sin created a debt, it created an off balance, and it 
created a rift in the relationship that God originally intended to have with humanity. Sin messed everything up, and that's what sin does to a relationship. Sin is always relational. It is always personal. Sin always separates the two people that it's coming between. It's like a wedge that it drives two people apart. And the closer you were, almost the bigger the divide will be once sin gets into the mix. Sin always separates a relationship. Another verse that says that I think even a little bit more clearly is Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2. It says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that he cannot save, or his ear dull that he cannot hear, but your iniquities, another long, it's just a long Bible word for sin, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Now what's going on in this little verse, the little backstory, is that Israel, the nation of Israel, they got themselves into a mess, and things are going bad for them, and they've been praying, God help, God come rescue us, and God's not doing anything. And they start to get mad, and they say, well, God's too weak. His arms are too short. He's like a T-Rex. He can't do anything with his tiny little arms. God's uncaring. He can hear our cries, and he's just turning a blind ear to, or a deaf ear to it. He's not, he's not listening to us. And they start to blame God as if God is the one who's done wrong, as if God is the one who's sinned. But the prophet Isaiah says, no, 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 no. The reason you and God are separated, the reason God's not coming through for you right now, it's because your sin is a wall between you and God. It's your fault. You've added up all this junk, all this sin, all this selfishness between you and God, and it has separated the relationship between God and his people. And then this phrase, so that he has hidden his face. In Old Testament, like the Hebrew language, the face was kind of seen as like the center of the personality. I mean, which makes sense. That's where all the facial expressions, it's where we laugh and cry and frown. It's where we interact with one another, right? And so in the ancient world, when someone has kind of either done something completely horribly wrong whether you're talking criminals or you're talking somebody who shamed their family or shamed their community, when they went outside or walked by, people would hide their face from them. I hide my face. That was kind of a same a saying, like, I'm not even going to even look at you, let alone talk to you, let alone invite you into my home and have any sort of relationship with you. I'm going to hide my face from you. That was a severing of a relationship. That was the language that was presented here. And so what we see, first and foremost, is that sin cuts that relationship off between us and our creator. And the relationship, again, I want you to see, that is at the forefront of this. It's not, oh, we broke the rules, shucks. It's not uh, something that, you know, God's like, oh, man, those little those rascals. It's a personal, personal, painful, painful thing. And you might say, well, why? Why would God hide his face? Why is it, what's the big deal about sin? Why does he get so upset about it? Well, it's because every time God gives us a law or a command or a, an encouraging path to follow, it is him sharing a little bit about himself with us. When God tells you to love your neighbor, it's because he does. When God tells you to be kind and gracious to people who don't deserve it, that's because that's how he is. When God when God's law tells you not to lie or cheat or steal, that's because God does not do those things. And when we faithfully obey, the reason it makes us closer to God is because it makes us more like him. 
And the reason sin creates separ- such a separation between us and God is because it's a personal rejection of him. It's a personal rejection of all that he is and all that he wants us to be. Because since he's sharing himself with us in his commands, when we say, I'm not, I don't want to follow those rules, it's saying, God, I don't want you in my life. I don't want to be like you. I don't want to have a relationship with you. I want nothing to be with you. It is like a slap in the face to all that God is. Because he made us out of nothing. And he gave us a life and commands to help us make the most of this life. And we're saying, I don't, forget you, eternal creator. I've been here for a half a second. I think I can figure it out. It's so arrogant and so prideful. And it's so painful. The best way I can think to illustrate this is for those of you who are parents or have been parents of older kids, I'm thinking like anything college or after. I mean, I mean after 50, it doesn't matter, okay? If, you're, if you have kids who are that age or older and, and you've ever gone to them and you saw them making bad choices, you saw them doing something that was painful, not just to them but to you and hurting themselves and others, if you went to them and you sat down and you said, I would love... I don't know if you can see what you're doing to yourself. I don't know if you can see these, where these steps are taking you, but I love you, and I, I want to help you make a better decision. And they looked at you and said, I don't need your help. I don't need you to tell me what to do. I don't need my, my mommy to micromanage my life. I'm a grown-up. I can do whatever I want. If you've ever been in that situation, and you walk away from that kitchen table meeting, and you think, man, that hurts. And it doesn't just hurt because you know what they're going to do. And you know how much it's going to hurt them. It hurts because they couldn't see the love that you had for them in that moment. It hurts that they couldn't see that you had their best interest at heart and that you were trying to save them. It hurts that they rejected that rescue mission that you went on as you leaned across the table and you begged and pleaded them to make a difference. It hurts. It's personal. That's what sin is between us and our creator. And we have got to understand that. And sometimes we don't want to talk about it. And that's why for the most part, except for my screaming kid, you can hear a pin drop. Because we understand that it's serious. And most of the time we'd like to skate over this because, again, we want to think our sin's not so bad. We want to turn this, transa- this relationship into nothing more than a transaction because then we're not guilty. Then we don't have to feel bad. Then we don't have to change our ways. And changing is hard and it's difficult. And we don't want to just go through all the work. But the reason we understand that it's serious is because when you see the size of the hole that we've dug ourselves in, it helps you see the size of God's love and grace that he would ever, ever forgive us and want to still have a relationship with us. So why would he ever forgive us? Isaiah chapter 43, verses 24 and 25 tells us this. God says, but you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. Again, big Bible word for sin. You've burdened me. You've wearied me. Our sin, the sin debt that exists between us and God, it weighs heavy on God's shoulders. He said, I, I am the one who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Now, in verse 25 we see that despite this burden that we've put on God, okay, we've wearied him, we've burdened him, we've, we've, we've hurt him, betrayed him, ignored him, slapped him in the face, you know, proverbially speaking with our sin, 
God says, I will blot out your sin forever. And the, the, the language here is so weird. It says, I, I, you know, the only time I, I see that is my kids watch Octonauts a lot, and there's this pirate, and he's like, I, I, Captain, you know? That's the only time, I, I. But the, in Hebrew, what he's saying is, me and nobody else. I'm the one who blots out sins. I'm the God who forgives. And, and what he's saying is, it's, he doesn't forgive for any other reason than he is a kind and loving for God, a kind and loving, forgiving God. And then he goes on to say this even stronger. He says, I forgive your transgressions. I blot out your sins for my own sake. Now, for his own sake, again, means it's his motivation. It's not because at some point in, in time we've impressed him and he thought, you know what? They've done a lot, of, a lot of wrong, but there's something there. I'll save them. No, we were totally wrong, totally a mess, totally a failure in his eyes, and he looks at us anyway, and out of his own self, he saves us. There's something inside of him that drives him to forgive, that drives him to reach out and pull us back into a relationship with him. And that very thing is his love for us. That he has so much love inside him for you and for me that it drives him to forgive the worst of the worst. And I mean, most of us have done bad things, okay? Most of us have done worse things than people know. I always say, you know, if we could take your sins and your worst thoughts and your worst day and put it up on the screen and run it like a movie, you'd probably never come back here out of embarrassment and shame, right? And so would I. You'd probably fire me, and I, I wouldn't say a thing. You'd be like, yeah, no, that's probably right, you know. Um, we, don't, we wouldn't want our worst to be seen. But even with us, those in the room, we know there's people in the world who have done things that we find even more reprehensible. Rape, abuse, murder. Those things are included in the fact that God forgives. God still loves those people so much that they can even see past those sins. His love still reaches out past those sins. It is for his own sake, out of his great love for us that he forgives. It is his love, his desire for us to no longer be separated from him that drives him to forgive us. So yes, sin may separate. Yes, sin may be disgusting. Sin must be vi- may be vile. But the forgiveness of God can still restore your relationship with him. The forgiveness of God can restore your relationship. And sin is so big that it causes God to pull away in disgust. But if that's true, then how big must his love be that he's still willing to reach out and take care of that sin and draw you back in? Now, if there's anything I can get you to see today, Anything I can get you to see today, it is the size of God's love for you. Uh, there's, you know, when you, when you try to present the good news of God's love for you, and we talk about that, you know, we say John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. We can all, a lot of us can rattle that off because we've heard it so many times, and maybe you got a bumper sticker on your car. But I think sometimes you've got to hold up the bad so that you can see how good the good is. Um, my kids, when they were little, they used to have this little light-up turtle. Anybody got those? Those bedtime turtles? You've seen those? And you, you turn them on, and they shine stars on the ceiling or waves on the ceiling. And, and if I were, had that, they've all broke. Not worth the money, just a heads up. As babies are us and toys are us clothes, and if, if you find one on sale, forget it. They didn't last long. But that's just free help right there. See? You got something out of coming to church today, if nothing else. When, those, when you turn those on during the day, it was like, okay, what's the point of this thing? It doesn't, it's just like you'll see it, the turtle kind of glows, but you don't see anything. But when you put that in their room and you turn on all the lights and it's in complete darkness and you hit the little button that turns those turtles on, it's amazing. 
You see every star twinkling, all the little waves, if you got the sea turtle moving around. It was so amazingly cool. And I remember the first time we got one and uh, for James when he was just a little, little guy. And me and Abby were like, oh, this is so cool. And I think we were just as floored as he was, you know. And, and I think sometimes because we talk about love and forgiveness and grace, they become almost noise to us. And we talk about them so much that we forget. But I'm a firm believer that sometimes the light, it never looks brighter than when you shine it in the dark. And so, yeah, I've talked a lot about the forgiveness and the separation of sin and how personal sin is, but you've got to understand that personal side of sin if you are ever going to appreciate the joy and the size of God's great forgiveness and love for you. And that's what I want you to hear today. Yeah, you're a mess. Yes, you've done horrible things that makes God want to pull away from you, but he loves you so much. You, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, he loves you so much that he wants to draw you back in with his forgiveness. He loves you so much that he sent his son into the world to die for our sins so that we could have a right relationship with him that lasted forever. And there's nothing I want you to understand more than God's love for you today. Because when we talk about forgiveness and we talk about debt language, it can seem impersonal. Forgiveness is anything but impersonal. It is the most personal thing to restore a relationship with your creator. He made you because he wants you here. And he sent Jesus because he doesn't want to spend eternity without you. And as we lead up to Easter, I want you to spend some time thinking about how God loves me. And I don't think I even understand it. There's some days where I'm still just sitting there in my office and I'll be working on a sermon like this and I'll just go, huh, he, God actually likes me. You know, sometimes you think God's like, a parent, you know, okay, let's just be honest. There's not a lot of kids in the room. Okay, I can say this. Okay, parents, sometimes you just tolerate them, right? I'm not the only one. Don't look at me like that. We're all friends here. Some days it's just like, you know, maybe I could just ship them off for a month. The other day Jude said, I want to go stay with Nana and Papa forever. Hallelujah, kid. <laughs> Hallelujah. Maybe I should edit that out of this sermon before I put it online. <laughs> right? And sometimes you think, well, God, he has to like me, right? He has to put up with me. I'm his kid. But no, even with your kids, though, even on their worst, you still absolutely have this overflowing love for them. Like, I know, yes, in that moment, it sounds good to send them to non and Papa's for a month. But you know what? Six hours into him being gone, I'd be like, I miss Jude. You know, I, that's how I am. God loves you so much, he wants to actually be with you and spend eternity with you. And he is driven by an absolute powerful love that cannot be taken away no matter how much you sin against him. No matter how much personal selfishness and anger or hate or whatever it is you throw his way, you cannot make him stop loving you. Because sin is not breaking some impersonal list of rules. It's something incredibly personal that, for, that offends him. And if we love him, as many of us claim to do, then we should care about how he feels. We should care about how we live our life and what it does to our relationship with him. And so sin may separate. That is true. And it will always be true. But just as true as the fact that God always forgives. And it's his forgiveness that draws you back into a right relationship with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your forgiveness. Though our sin causes you to hide your face and turn away from us. Though our sin is everything that disgusts you, disgusts you, your love for us compelled you to, to 
to come up with a way for us to have forgiveness. You sent your son to take away our sin, to pay the price for our sin, to answer the personal anger that you have felt every time we've sinned. Jesus took that anger. He took that wrath on himself so that our our criminal record of sin could be wiped clean and we could stand before you clean and that you could draw us back into a relationship with you. So I pray that we would understand that you want to be with us, that you love each and every person here no matter how far away from you we've walked. And I pray that we would want a relationship with you too. And we would want to seek you in prayer. We would have a hunger to study your words so that we can know more about you and understand the size of your grace in light of our sin. And so that we can learn how to follow you more closely because we know that following your commands makes you happy. And that's what you want to do when you're in a relationship with someone. You want to make them happy. And we want to please you with how we live because we love you too. Help us, Father, to understand the size of our sin today and help us to seek forgiveness for our sin, not to treat it like some impersonal thing that doesn't matter, to not just throw up some Hail Mary prayer before we go to sleep, but actually lean into you and not just pray for forgiveness, but pray that you would give us the strength to change so that we wouldn't offend you any longer, so that we would be people who don't have sin in our lives to drive a wedge between us and you. Thank you, Father, for being so good and so kind that even though we're a mess, you reach out and you save us anyway. You're too good. You're too good. And we are grateful. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.